We are in the fifth week of our sermon series called The Path to Victory. And over the course of the last four weeks, I've been trying to make the following case. First, that we are at war and that we must acknowledge that. And we must train, plan, and strategize accordingly. This is not a mistake. This is God's plan for us. And it always has been for his people. War is familiar territory for Christians. And if we are unfamiliar with it, we need to correct that quick. Everywhere that Christians fight, we win. The reason for our current momentary defeat in culture is not because Christians have fought valiantly and lost, but because we stopped fighting. It's not yet time to trade our weapons in for garden tools. That day will come, but it is not here yet. The second point I aimed to make was that we must first regain a doctrinal purity amongst our Christian churches. We expect the world to descend into chaos because without an objective truth giver, there is no purpose at all. But there are few things more despicable than when pastors of churches teach lies or when they omit truths in order to coddle worldly ways. Churches must boldly teach what is true and not care one iota what the world thinks about it. They should be filled not with comfort-seeking world lovers, but with world-despising God lovers. I've heard literally mission statements from churches, big churches. Something to the effect of, we want to build churches that worldly people love to attend. What absurd folly. We must be unwavering in our commitment to the gospel. We've got to grow in our love for and familiarity with the Bible, and it must begin with churches. The next case that I aimed to make was that we must set up the next generation to win the battles that we have lost. And I suggest that this is not only a biblical strategy, but it's one that we should employ today. And in order to do this, our fourth point, was that we must regain control of our homes. It is essential that we put the household back into its God-designed place of priority. Our children have been taught to submit to everyone but their parents. Our women have been taught to despise their God-given roles as mothers and nurturers. Our men have been taught that any masculine impulse that they may have is toxic and should be rejected. Even the way we think about singleness and families without children has been under attack by the world. We must reclaim a right prioritizing of the Christian household. Now, last week, I did not have time to finish Uh, the sermon that we began. And so that's all I plan to do today is wrap up that that portion. And by the time I get to the end, you'll see why I had to push this into this week. Now, I hope that over the course of this series, I've been offering you some practical suggestions as to what you can do as a result of this study. But today, I hope to offer at least one more encouragement as to how you can daily advance Christ's kingdom down the path to victory. 
And so we're going to go back to the text that we were in last week, Joshua 24, verses 14 through 28. And we're only going to cover half of one verse in here today in the time that we have. But I'm going to go ahead and read through the whole text so it's fresh in our minds again. And then we're going to dive in, and I'll share with you what I think will just be one point of application, Lord willing, this morning. I'm going to read 14 through 28. You can follow along if you have your Bibles with you. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, the stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we love your word. We receive it as what it is, your word given to us, that we may be properly trained We may be corrected, we may be admonished, we may be encouraged, and we may honor you as our God. We pray that it would do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, a quick reminder where this passage came from. This was the period in Israelite history after they had come out of the land of Egypt in slavery. They spent 40 years in the wilderness until the next generation inherited the land of Israel. They went in and they obeyed the Lord their God in clearing the land. And while there was still much work to be done, the Lord said that regarding that generation, their battle was complete. That They were to settle the land. So Joshua, uh, the chief general, the commanding officer of the troops of Israel, gathered the people together and he gave them this final commission. This was a retelling of the covenant that they had already made and established with God. And that's in part what I just read to you. But at the beginning of his discourse here, this is what Joshua said in chapter 24, verse 14. 
The first words out of his mouth regarding this covenant. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. After doing a short retelling of their history, so they remembered how it is that they got there, the first words Joshua delivers to the people, now therefore fear the Lord. Fear. This is the starting point for understanding truth and for doing what God commands. If you don't know who God is sufficiently to the point that you would be fearful of his greatness, and you have got to get that straight before anything else. A.W. Tozer once said, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. This is so true. Even in the Apostle Paul, in giving his amazing discourse on the gospel in the book of Romans, by the time he gets to chapter 3, he explains that all humanity is in the same plight. That all of us have sinned against God. No one is righteous. No, not one. And he's appealing to Old Testament scriptures. He's drawing on these truths that are still true and forever true. And his summary that he draws on in Romans 3.18 is this. The problem with humanity... There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's where Joshua begins. Israel, before you break from this camp and go out to settle, you must get this right. God is far bigger, far greater, far more beautiful, far more worthy of worship, more fearsome than we could possibly imagine. And it's on that starting point that this necessarily points to what comes next. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. You'll notice that as we summarize Joshua's final words to his people, this is kind of the beginning of this discourse, but this is a helpful summary. He was most concerned about their faithfulness. It was not the organization of Israel that concerned Joshua, nor was it the size and the might of their enemies or the wildness of the landscape or the potential threats of invasion, sickness, or famine. It was in how they would relate to God. That was his concern. You could have said something like, You have a bigger army, Israel. You have more industrious people, wiser leaders, greater control over the territory, more resources. But this will only work if you remain faithful. At the beginning of our Hebrews chapter 11 passage, which we've been in as a a church for a while, we took a break from our study through Hebrews to jump into this sermon series for a bit. The beginning of Hebrews, in in Hebrews 11 chapter 6, tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For us to have peace with God, a right relationship with him, the starting point is faith. This is the essence of our gospel, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. No matter what deeds, no matter good works you might try to leverage to please God, nothing that you have to offer is worthy enough to pay the price for your sins. 
This is the message of the gospel, that you are a sinner just like I am. All of us deserve God's just judgment against us, and that judgment is death, separation from him for forever. For everyone who dies in their sins will go to hell for forever. And that's what all of us have deserved from the beginning until now, all of humanity. But God provided in great love and mercy his son to come and live a perfect life, and at the end of that life to die for the sins of all of those who will ever have faith in him. And so the gospel call is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. Have faith in him and you will have eternal life. This is something that we say every week when we gather together. If you hear this and if you hear the drumbeat of this all the time and if you've not repented of your sins and turned in faith to Jesus, there is no higher priority for you. You need to get your heart right before the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We today, just like these Israelites, need faithfulness. These are the final words of a faithful man to a generation of mostly faithful people. And a kind of a a, a deathbed speaking. He's not dying right here, but this is the final words we're going to see from Joshua in the course of his life. If you had one final moment to convey truth to your children... Deathbed moments. There is nothing more important to convey than this. Not, don't forget to take the garbage out Tuesday nights. The the keys to the car are in the drawer by my nightstand. Uh, That's not the stuff that you care about in your final moments. As a believer, that your legacy would continue in faithfulness. Believe in the Lord. Everything else will come together. Have faith in God. The kind of God that's worth fearing. The true God. As you and I look at this crazy world, we must not advocate for a change that does not demand faith in God. In fact, that's what got us into the mess in the first place. Somewhere along the line, American Christians got it into their minds that they could expect the world to live in peace with their neighbors without saving faith in Jesus. But that cannot work. It's impossible for it to work. Zero times in history has that worked because without faith, it is impossible to please God. It always, always, always ends up in misery and chaos. How can the world celebrate the slaughter of 60 million unborn babies in our country and county? How can they celebrate that? How can they revel literally in the streets over the unabated sexual immoralities of homosexuality and transgenderism? Simple, because they don't believe in God. They don't have faith in God. That's how you get there. In fact, it is the inevitable result of a life that does not have faith in God. But the great and wonderful news is that the reverse is also true. When a nation of people repents of sin and turns in faith to God, they overcome the world. Let me show you 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. See that? What is the victory that has overcome this world? Our faith. 
apart from faithfulness, the next generation, we have nothing, no hope to build upon. The reason that you and I are saved today and that we have the gospel and continue on in this work is because faithful believers throughout history have transformed this planet by their faith. That's how we got here. That's why this thing wasn't snuffed out in the first century. That's why after the apostles were, were, were eradicated, killed in a bloody mess, why the faith didn't disappear. Why there was not a great apostasy, just as Jesus promised that there wouldn't be one. How is it? He promised that his church would succeed in the face of opposition. How? By the faith of the people. It's so amazing to me that even when you look back in passages like this in Joshua, the way that David, we covered David's time and him passing off the torch to his son Solomon to keep doing the work that he wanted to do for the Lord and gave him a legacy to build upon. Whenever Israel is pointed to as this blessed, favored nation, it's always said that Israel didn't get there on its own merit. In fact, by its own merit, Israel looked worse than all the nations around them in many seasons of their lives. But it was only because of the God in whom they had faith. Our God is so great, and that's why this depends on faith. As more and more people in this world have saving faith, proclaim Jesus as Lord, his victory over sin and death will change everything. There's a sentiment that I've sensed over the course of my entire lifetime growing up in Christian household and Christian churches. It's a sentiment that's shared by a great many believers today. That the cosmic spiritual war in this age is fought by Christian soldiers who've been uniquely selected to fight on the front lines of ministry, missionaries, evangelists, apologists, pastors, maybe Christian authors or debaters, those who take their faith into the public sphere. And while those warriors are on the front lines, it's the responsibility of the rest of us ordinary believers to send them into battle while we hold down the fort at home. This is wrong. This is wrong thinking. It's not true. You won't find that in the Bible. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in battle whether you like it or not. In fact, everywhere that you go is the front lines. Everywhere. That's the front lines battle. That's where the war is taking place. The Spirit of God is in you to equip you for that work. We see this all over the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 4 through 7, is a great place where it tells us about the distinct giftings given to different believers. Definitely true. Different believers have been gifted in different ways by the Spirit of God for His holy purpose. But look what it says. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So which believers are responsible to exercise those gifts for the common good? 
All. All of them. This is why the Bible, the New Testament, doesn't read like this. Go find the real hardcore Christians and tell them they're supposed to do these things. We are constantly commanded in the second person plural. Y'all, go do this. All y'all, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Guys, we repeat the Great Commission passage almost every Sunday in here because that's what we're supposed to go do. When you are supposed to slay sin in your life, who's the you? You. When you are supposed to make disciples of your neighbors, Who's the you? You. This is the way it's supposed to work. Practically. I want you to think about this for a moment. Practically. This means that your quiet time is battle. You defeating personal, private sins is warfare. You singing praises to Jesus with your kids or praying with your wife or sharing communion with fellow Christians at church is advancing Christ's kingdom. That's not the stuff we do to prepare for advancing Christ's kingdom. That is advancing the kingdom. Are are you tracking this? You following what what I'm saying here? The stuff that we do here in our households and stuff, it's not preparing for some other distant battlefield. That is the war. And some of you know it. And some of you, in those moments, you felt the bullets whiz past your head. Some of you have taken great, deep wounds in those spheres. But you can do a ton of busy work for God. You can, you can commit your whole life to do busy work for God and not have faith in him. It happens all the time. There are churches filled with thousands and thousands of people many of whom have no faith in God at all. They just do busy work. And that will be of no lasting service in our war. Faithless good works will not help us at all. In fact, they're going to hurt our cause. If faith without deeds is dead, as James tells us, how much more are deeds without faith altogether useless? All this talk about warfare and battle, we must be clear to differentiate between how the world fights and how Christians fight. So just just for clarity's sake again, and we've got to look at a verse like this. This is awesome. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 12. Consider this with me. Apostle Paul gives all this glorious doctrine in the first half of the book of Ephesians. In the second half, he gives practical war-fighting strategy. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Who's Paul meaning to equip? The 2% of hardcore, faithful soldier Christians? All of us. All of us are to do this. We are to be strong in the Lord. We are to don the armor of God. Why? Because we're not fighting physical battles. We're fighting spiritual ones. And that spiritual realm is everywhere. It's in your bathroom. It's at the coffee shop. 
where you can choose to either open the word or do the tasks that are taking over your day. They're in your children's bedroom when you sit on the edge of the bed and you're, you're putting them to sleep and it's been a long day and you're trying to decide how to use the last couple of moments with them. The spiritual war is taking place when you're having a fight with your wife. This is our spiritual battle. We are at war with sin and the spiritual forces of evil. This is not a war that will be won with fists and guns. Guys, it would be way easier if that was the case. Way easier, wouldn't it? This is going to take a lot longer. It will not be won by those carnal means, but by our faith in God. That's what must operate in the heart and in the mind of every individual believer. And even the simple acts of faithfulness are what will change the world. We've, we've got to get that, those are the missionaries mentality out. When people are filled with faith in God, they will do things that will cause the world to flourish. They will influence everything around them with the gospel. John Frame is an American Christian philosopher. I want to read something he wrote here that I think is very appropriate for this statement. The gospel creates new people who are committed to Christ in every area of their lives. People like this will change the world. They will fill and rule the earth for the glory of Jesus. They will plant churches and establish godly families, and they will also establish hospitals, schools, arts, and sciences. That is what has happened by God's grace, and that is what will continue to happen until Jesus comes. Your work in this world is an act of worship. And when the institutions of our nation are once again filled with people of faith who, with everything they set their minds to, are worshiping King Jesus, that will transfigure the face of the earth. All of the good things that our country has yet experienced in the past are a result of this very thing in previous generations. You know, prior to the great Christian retreat from those institutions, the world has foolishly forgotten that the precepts of liberty, justice, compassion, mercy are decidedly Christian conventions. They've been established by men and women of faith in our past. You're welcome, world. The reason you have any of that good is because Christians brought that to bear. Do you know what Europe looked like before Christianity got there? Warring tribes of naked, blue-painted people killing each other in endless raids, literally drinking the blood of their enemies. Just saw an article in the news just two days ago, again, about yet another ancient civilization in Europe who they just found a giant burial ground of men, women, and children all bludgeoned to death in a giant mass grave. And they find these all over the place. That's what Europe was like before Christianity got there. All of the goods that have come out of there are Christian. And all of the ills are because of the flesh that has continued to persist. This is, this is not hard math to run. Have you ever stopped to do this math? That all, all, all of the first world countries on our planet are those who have had the longest history of Christian influence. And all of the third world countries are those who have had the shortest history of Christian influence. Because Christians 
throughout history have subdued the earth and brought things under the dominion of Jesus. You know, I'm not the first one to make this statement at all. This is something that has been acknowledged and seen by Christians throughout the ages. In fact, I found a quote that was written in 1890, 1890, by a famous world traveler who had made his way on, on a ship around to various different islands all throughout the world. And oftentimes he'd land where Christian missionaries had gone before him. He realized that there were people who were foolish enough to think that Christianity is the one that brings the ills while the world brings the good. And this is what he said in response to this. Here's a quote here for you. Again, 1890. There are many who attack both the missionaries, their system, and the effects produced by it. Such reasoners never compare the present state with that of the island only 20 years ago. They forget or will not remember that human sacrifice and the power of idolatrous priesthood, infanticide, bloody wars, where the conquerors spare neither women nor children, that all these have been abolished, and that dishonesty, intemperance, and licentiousness have been greatly reduced by the introduction of Christianity. In a voyager, to forget these things is base ingratitude. For should he chance to be at point of shipwreck on some unknown coast, he will devoutly pray that the lesson of the missionary may have extended thus far. You know who wrote that? Charles Darwin. In his journal of a voyage around the world. that the voyager would land on a beach and say, I hope Christians got here first. Because if they didn't, you're probably for dinner. Our world needs the gospel, needs it. It needs presidents and doctors and plumbers and lawyers and nurses and bloggers and police officers and judges and teachers and pilots who love God more than anything who have set their hearts to love and to serve the Lord. To put it another way, it needs more Christians who live and act like Christ. That's what this world needs. You hear that, kids? Whatever the Lord puts in your heart to go do in your future, whatever job he puts on your heart, whatever skill set he's given you to, to cultivate and to nurture and to work on, use that for the Lord. You need to take whatever those things are and you need to work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord rather than men. That was originally given to slaves back in the first century. How much more free people? Whatever the Lord gives you to do, work at it with all of your heart as for the Lord. Do it better than anyone else. Better than anyone. Work hard. Do that instrument better than the people around you. If you're a Christian in law, become a judge fast and judge rightly. If you want to become a police officer, be a good one who honors the Lord and does not fear men. You want to be a business owner, produce as much money as you possibly can to pour into current and future ministry endeavors. Build the kingdom with your resources. If you're a teacher, teach truth and refuse to teach lies. Can you imagine what it would be like if 90% of teachers in a system refused, just flatly refused to teach what was untrue. Nope, not happening. I'm just not doing that. Do you not know that every authority under God that exists can only work 
if people allow it. Even the wicked tyrant stands there and says, kill that bad guy. All of his soldiers can say, nope. No matter how big our church gets, no matter how wide our influence spreads, no matter how much money we make or how many kids we have or how many churches we plant or how many Christian schools we start or how many evangelism resources we produce, none of that will matter if we, you and I, do not remain faithful to our God. This is our absolute, absolute highest priority. You being a good dad, or being a good wife, or being a good Christian friend or neighbor, good parent, good worker, those things are not your highest priority. Your highest priority is your faithfulness before the Lord. Highest priority. This is why my hope is that as we see this, we will set our hearts to win this war with generations of Christians living in faithfulness. So when we say, ready, break, go, and go to war, this is not pick up the guns, pick up the knives, pick up the fists. This is a spiritual battle. And what is the spiritual battle? Tomorrow morning, you actually reading the Bible. That's what it is. That's actually slaying the enemy. Tonight, before you go, go to bed, refusing to not pray with your family. That's winning the war. That's writing this whole thing. That's our path to victory. Early on, almost exactly one year ago this week, I preached a sermon in a very similar kind of way. What do we do when the world is crazy? How are we supposed to move forward when things go down like this? In fact, then I said the same thing that I'll repeat right now by each of us pursuing personal holiness. We don't go, okay, someday I'll get to that holiness thing. Right now we got to get busy with Christian work. No. That's the priority. That is the work. So brothers and sisters, that's my charge this morning. I believe that the word of God commands for us to do. And I want to conclude this morning with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. It reads like this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. You remember what's going on there if you've ever read 1 Corinthians 15? This is telling us of a final time at the return of Jesus when we will finally be made complete, when we will no longer be able to die, when sickness and death will be gone from us, when final judgment will be doled out, when the new heavens and the new earth begin for us. This is what it says about that time in verse 54. When the perishable meets, puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, it's quite simple. When we get into our little war room planning sessions and try to figure out, what does the Lord want us to do in this season? It's not difficult to see the strategy. It's not hard for us to understand, what does the Lord want for us to do? How are you supposed to live in light of this crazy time? In faithfulness. That's how we're to do it. That's all I have to share for you today. That's a record for me. If someone wants to go out there and make sure the band knows they're ready to come on up, I could just vamp for another 20 minutes. They're not used to me ending this this quickly. But I'm going to go ahead and pray to close. I'm actually not joking. Uh, would someone go get the band? Thanks, brother. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> um, that's how I wanted to conclude this series with you, brothers and sisters. I hope that that was encouraging for you. So much more can and could be said about this. But I want to close this morning uh, with a word of prayer. Let's do that. Father, we love you and we trust you. Your word is beyond sufficient for us. I pray that as, as the mission church, Lord, I think about this all the time. Father, I pray that as the mission church, we would be a people marked by our holiness, by our faithfulness to you. Not, not that we would just produce good things. Not that we would just get busy with lots of projects. Not that we would find a really big and pretty building that we could use for, for a whole bunch of things that we think would be good. Father, none of that matters if we as believers are not pursuing Christ-likeness, if we are not putting to death the deeds of the flesh, if we are not seeking your face every morning, if we are not pouring ourselves out in gratitude and thanksgiving every time that we see the many blessings you've given to us. Father, let us be marked by that, that someday when the people look back at this generation and see how things began to change again for good, they would say it happened by the power of God, through faithful believers. Lord, what we ask for is nothing unique. What we ask for is nothing, nothing uh, outside of the ordinary. We're not asking for you to send an angel over to the break glass in, quarter, in order to save us a kind of a moment. Like it's some kind of emergency you weren't prepared for. Father, we acknowledge that what we're facing now is what believers have always faced. Spiritual battle. Help us to see that. Help us to rush forward into this battle every moment of our lives. Help us to be filled back up here together and encouraged to that end when we come together and sing praises to you and open the word together and pray together and share communion together and, and get baptized and, and, uh, and celebrate together in fellowship. Father, that's what we need to happen. We pray that you would begin that work in each and every life and heart here. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.